0: Welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast
1: recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute IMPRI in New Delhi
0: Namaste, and good morning, everyone. I am Ritika Gupta, Assistant Director at IMPRI Impact and Policy Research Institute, Vevam Niti Anusandhan Sansthan, New Delhi. Extend my heartiest welcome to this IMFRI Hashtag Web Policy Talk. Today, we are here for a special lecture on the mental health of India's youth. The lecture is being delivered by Professor Vikram Patel. With this, I hand over the mic to Dr. Signee Mehta, who is CEO and Editorial
2: Director at
3: IMPRI. Now, I'm over to you.
2: Thank you, you, Ritika. Uh, Good morning to everyone. Today we have gathered to discuss on the very pertinent topic that affects us all, mental health of India's youth. Whether we are ourselves going through the challenges, or one or many of our loved ones are suffering, the burden of mental health disorders is immense. To delve into this very important theme, we are fortunate to have with us Professor Vikram Patel, who would deliver this special lecture. The session will be chaired by Professor Prabhachandra, followed by an eminent panel of discussants sharing their concerns and reflections. Thank you all for joining us this morning. I take this opportunity to introduce to you the chair, Professor Prabhachandra, who is professor and former head of psychiatry at National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences, Nimhans, Bangalore. She is president-elect of the International Association for Women's Mental Health and has been a visiting professor at the University of Liverpool, United Kingdom. She is a clinician and an academic and her research spans from gender issues in mental health to perinatal mental health and early childhood. Dr. Prabha is an editor and author of several books on the topic and has been featured as a champion for women's mental health in India by the Lancet journal. Thank you ma'am for joining us today. I am delighted and privileged to introduce our speaker for the day, Professor Vikram Patel. Professor Patel is the Pershing Square Professor of Global Health in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is an adjunct professor and joint director of the Center for Chronic Conditions and Injuries at the Public Health Foundation of India. Honorary Professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine where he co-founded the Center for Global Mental Health in 2008. And he is the co-founder of Sangat, an Indian NGO which won the MacArthur Foundation's International Prize for Creative and Effective Institutions in 2008 and also the WHO Public Health Champion of India Award in 2016. Professor Patel is a fellow of the UK's Academy of Medical Sciences and has served on several WHO expert and Government of India committees. His work on the burden of mental disorders, their association with poverty and social disadvantage, and the use of community resources for the delivery of interventions for their prevention and treatment has been globally recognized. For instance, he has received the Chalmers Medal, an honorary doctorate from Georgetown University, the Pardes Humanitarian Prize, an honorary officer of the Order of British Empire from the UK government, among several others. Professor Patel also works in the area of child development and adolescent health. He was listed in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential Persons of the Year in 2015. He has played a lead role in synthesizing evidence that has shaped the foundation of the field of global mental health and promoted its dissemination by editing key journal series and textbooks that form the basis for teaching and practice in the field. Thank you very much sir for accepting our invitation to talk on a very important topic. I now invite Professor Chandra to deliver her opening remarks and thereafter invite Professor Patel to deliver his lecture. Over to you. Over to you ma'am. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you Dr. Simi uh, and thanks Impree for inviting me
4: uh, yet again to chair another interesting session. I think uh, we could have no one better than uh, Dr. Vikram Patel to deliver this talk. Um, Just to say that every morning when I open my email inbox, I get at least two mails from young people uh, for varied reasons. Um, Like this morning, I got got, got a mail from somebody, a young woman who said she wants mental health support, she does not know where to go, she doesn't know whom to trust and she's writing to me to guide her to, to somebody. Uh, and, and this is not an unusual um, you know, occurrence. Uh, many times it's about for themselves, very often it's for friends, uh, sometimes it's to support other people, sometimes it's to participate in, in something else. Uh, we have Aparna over here from iCall and many times I get people who contact me through the iCall helpline uh, asking me for uh, you know, guidance. Uh, so I think that the, the, the need for youth mental health is in, in no doubt but i think the important thing is uh, how do you create services that are uh, youth friendly how do you reach this group which does not otherwise access health services uh, because they otherwise usually physically healthy uh, how do you how do you uh, you know make sure that you reach the uh, demand and create uh, sort of uh, you know services because campaigns like there are, there have been many campaigns uh, uh, including some which uh, Sangat and PHFI have spearheaded. There's Youth for Mental Health in India, uh, which, are, which are really wonderful uh, platforms, but then you create a supply, and then how do you meet that demand? Um, apart from that, how do you encourage youth to co-create services? Because most youth want to be part of services, wanted to be participatory. How does India create a movement like that? And a time like in the pandemic where educational challenges have happened where there is online education and very, very less peer support uh, or contact, where social connectedness has kind of broken down, particularly for young people, where employment opportunities are not enough. What is the role of policy and government to ensure that mental health is uh, of the youth is paramount and what can we do about it? So, I think that there are huge challenges uh, at this point, and I'm hoping uh, Vikram will uh, highlight some of these issues. And not to forget people uh, from remote areas, young people, uh, the rural youth, uh, women and young girls who uh, do not know where to go for support or help. Um, I I think that there are many, many uh, layers to to this uh, problem and to this challenge. Um, and so let's listen to dr uh, vikram patel talking about it this and then we will we'll take it up for discussion please vikram
5: thank you very much prabha and thank you for inviting me uh, to 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 talk about a subject that's very close to my heart i'm going to uh, share my uh, uh, screen now and um, take you through over the next 25 minutes, um, my understanding of the youth mental health crisis in India with the caveat that this is also based not just on my own work, but also a large body of work that's been done by many different agencies in the country. Um, So let me first start by just, uh, you know, saying the obvious, um, which is why young people are so important. We often hear of young people as being the demographic dividend of India, and that's for good reason. India is home to the largest number of young people. And by young people, I'm really referring to, you know, an age group that really roughly extends from around puberty in the early teens all the way into the early to mid-20s. The whole notion of adolescence and and youth has also changed dramatically as developmental science has evolved in the last decade. So that's really the age group I'm talking about. And this age group is really considered uh, to be the vanguard of social movements, not just the, the foundation of our economy, but actually the foundation of society itself in a variety of different ways. And I don't need to give examples in India alone about some of these movements that we're seeing unfold in the country. And thus their health and well-being is of critical importance, not only to those young people, but actually to all of us, uh, and indeed to the future of our country and our planet. So with that in mind, I want to just start by, you know, uh, there are thousands of such news stories. And I've just got you know, these are from a few years ago, but I can find many more. Uh, You know, stories like this, which hit our newspapers every single day. Uh, Stories, essentially, of young people uh, who have committed suicide uh, at some recent point of time. And I think if you look at each of these stories, there's one common thread that really binds them together. And that is that these are not the usual suspects of people who are ending their lives. Of course, there are many people who are extremely poor and destitute who end their lives. But the truth is that all of these stories capture a very different demographic. These are young people, typically quite educated or talented. For example, they're in top universities, or there are sports people, they're in medical schools, etc. from all corners of the country, who seemingly, in spite of all the social advantages that they seem to be possessing, uh, have actually chosen to end their lives. Now, of course, a, a bunch of newspaper stories don't make for a, a, a really uh, transparent accounting of actually how many young people are ending their lives. And for that, we have to turn uh, to other data sources. The most commonly used data source in India uh, is of course the National Crime uh, Research Bureau, um, which in 2014 uh, reported that about 60,000 young people had died. Actually, there is more recent data now available for 2018. Which shows uh, a year-on-year increase uh, between 2019 and 2018 of four percent, and that the vast majority of all young people that all the suicide deaths in India occurred in young people. But looking at the level of underreporting, because as you well know, until very recently, suicide was a criminal offence, and uh, uh, even though now it's been decriminalised, the honest truth is the fact that it's been decriminalised is probably unknown to most police thanas in most part of the country. So I would expect that under reporting still continues. But back in 2014, whereas the NCRB reported 60,000 new deaths, when we looked at the Registrar General of India's data uh, as part of the Million Death Study, which is a much more systematic community-based uh, prospective uh, cause of death study that the RGI uh, conducts continuously, uh, in fact, we discovered that the true numbers uh, were about a third greater. So the actual numbers of young people's deaths in 2014 was about 100,000. And given that there has been an increase uh, over the last few years in India, uh, we can only um, uh, estimate that the true number last year, for example, was well over a lakh. In fact, if you look at the overall suicide data in India, it's important to bear this in mind that India, by, uh, by all means, is in fact the epicenter of global suicide. For example, if you look at the total proportion of male deaths uh, due to suicide globally that occur in India, mind you, this is using the Indian uh, uh, official data, not the, not the actual data, not the actual suicide, but the ones that are reported in the NCRB, you can see that between 1990 and 2016, the total proportion of male deaths, global male deaths that were occurring in India shot up from about a fifth to a quarter. And if you look at the female, it's even more astonishing. Uh, From a quarter of all worldwide female deaths due to suicide occurring in India, it has shot up to more than a third uh, of all female deaths. Now, obviously India is a very populous country and the first thing people think about is that actually this reflects the population uh uh, the the proportion of the global population that is in in India but actually that's not true because you can see that the proportion of the global population is actually not changed very much over the last 25 years and it hovers around uh uh, just under 15 percent in other words India disproportionately contributes to global suicide and the proportion is actually increasing with time which could be a reflection both that India has is seeing more suicides but also that the rest of the world is more successful in reducing suicides. This, by the way, is again coming from a government of India a study led by ICMR and the Public Health Foundation of India. Importantly, the same group also showed that the vast majority of these deaths are occurring. As you can see in this chart, this is the percentage of the number of deaths or all total suicide deaths. You can see the peak occurs between the ages of 15 and 29. If you had to show the same chart for, let's say, a rich country like the US or Britain, you'd see a very different picture. You'd see a peak occurring here in older age. But in India, you see the peak occurring in young people. Suicide is therefore now the leading cause of death in young Indians. In fact, it's been the leading cause of death in young Indians for about a decade. And it's interesting when you think about that. this is not new information. This is publicly available data. It is government data. So there's no question also about, you know, whether or not this was done by this or that agency. It's nationally representative data and it's been around for more than 10 years. And it's important to pause and think that even today, In spite of this data, there is still no suicide prevention program in this country for anyone, and certainly not specifically targeting the most high-risk group of all, which is young people. Now, it's important also to get some global context in here. Uh, it's important to remember that suicide is also a leading cause of death in young people in other countries. In the US, where I spend a fair bit of my time, uh, you will see here that suicide is the second leading cause of death in young Americans uh, from the ages of 10 to 34. If you look at the global burden of disease data, you will also see that there is a peak in the burden of mental health conditions, which is this blue bars, as well as in suicide, which is you see in these gray gray bars uh, uh, in young people. And I'm going to just highlight that. Much of this peak is driven by developing countries, in particular India. Because as I said, if you had to look only at developed countries, you'll find that the peak of suicide actually occurs in older age. Um, But when you combine developing countries where, and I'll turn to why that is the case in in a moment, you will find that the peak of both mental health conditions uh, as well as suicide occurs uh, in young people. And moreover, it's getting worse. As I said, I, the Indian data are still to be fully unpacked. Uh, the more recent Indian data, also India publishes its suicide data, unfortunately not very regularly. So at the moment, as far as I can tell, the latest data and Sumitra, others on the panel may have more updated information. is it, actually two years old. On the other hand, in the U.S. and many developed uh, countries, uh, suicide data are published in real time almost every month. And so what you can see here is even before the pandemic hit, uh, suicide rates have been going up in the U.S. You also see similar uh, uh, increasing trajectories in many other countries, such as Australia and England as well. Uh, But look at the astonishing rate of increase in young people, nearly 50 percent in the last decade. In other words, there is a crisis of young people's mental health if we use suicide as the most, uh, uh, you know, as it were, the most commonly measured metric at a national level of mental health, um, not just in India. It's a global phenomenon. It's happening in many countries of the world. Uh, and one has to therefore get to the bottom of why that is the case. And understanding the problem is therefore the most important uh, question for us because if we have to respond to this problem, we have to first figure out the reasons why uh, mental health problems are so common in young people, why they're actually increasing over the last decade. And so we need to first of all, start by acknowledging very new science that's been only available in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, And let me just explain to you the context of this new science. When I was a medical student and I think that also applies to some of my co-panelists who were uh, also medical students when I was a medical student. Uh, if we were taught that the brain essentially was a very static organ after early childhood. That most of the developmental changes that occurred in brain architecture and connections actually happened during pregnancy and in the first few years after childbirth. And even today, to be honest, if you look at the field of early child development, it still continues to perpetuate that particular idea that maximum, you know, most change occurs in the first few years. This is true. Most change does occur, in fact, in the first few years of life, but it is not true to say the brain is static or just simply degenerates after that. In fact, we now know that there is another second critical developmental phase for brain development that occurs during young adulthood, again, starting from the pubertal period, extending up onto emerging adulthood. Now, time doesn't uh, allow me to go into any great detail about those changes, um, but this is a great book, which I think provides a kind of a summary of what those changes are. I found it very helpful when I was raising my my son, who was uh, at the time an adolescent. Um, And what it tells us is that basically, across all animal species including the human species, um, there is a differential process of maturation of brain regions during adolescence, which means that the parts of the brain that are controlling our impulsive behaviors, the behaviors that determine risk-taking and thrill-seeking matures about six to eight years earlier than the part of the brain which is responsible for decision-making uh, and executive functioning. Which means effectively put it in a real simple nutshell, the part of your brain that tells you to act now and act because you're really, you know, um, you want to seek thrills and take risks, basically starts up before the part of the brain that tells you, hey, listen, why don't you pause and think about what you're about to do because you might get into trouble this is why we now know that young people are biologically and evolutionary, I use the word evolutionary because of course we also see this in every animal species, they're primed to take risks and behave impulsively and this is an essential advantage of this phase of life because this is the phase of life when we make this incredibly huge transition from being completely dependent on our on our parents for every need to becoming completely autonomous adults who in fact will be taking care of children. And we do this in this incredibly compressed period of our life course. If you think you know, most of us will live to the age of 70 uh, or at least 70, um, we are making this enormous set of life transitions within a period of five to eight years. Um, and so, the way the brain learns how to become an adult almost is by taking risks. This is the kind of way in which learning takes place. And this is a really transform- transformative new science of understanding young people. So that instead of blaming young people for being you know, mischievous or trying to hassle grown et cetera, actually we realize that impulsivity and risk-taking is a fundamental part of the developmental transition from childhood into adulthood. But what this also means is that if the social environment is not conducive to safe risk taking, to safe impulsive behavior, then you can actually land up with a number of risky behaviors. And of course, this is why all risk behaviors begin in this age group, whether it's the initiation of smoking, whether it's the initiation of unsafe sex, whether it's initiation of interpersonal violence, or indeed the initiation of self-harm behaviors. And so if you look at the whole gamut of risk-taking behaviors through the developmental lens, it becomes completely understandable why they all begin in this age group. This means that our focus should not be in trying to fix the biology of young people, because this is part of who we are as human beings, but instead to examine the environments in which unsafe risk taking takes place. And when we do that, we discover that across all risk behaviors, you find a very common sense set of platforms uh, of of patterns of determinants that that influence risk. And here I'm talking specifically of risk for poor mental health and self-harm. Adverse childhood experiences the most consistent risk factor for all poor uh, outcomes in mental health. Violence, particularly interpersonal violence, not just at the hands of your parents, or your teachers but very importantly when you're an adolescent or young adult at the hands of your peers uh, because most violence that actually takes place when you're 16 or 17 uh, is actually at the hands of your peers. Substance use which of course is a mental health problem in and of itself but also contributes to other mental health problems. Discrimination for example sexual minority groups or other minority groups in majoritarian cultures uh, peer influences and comparisons on social media, and I'm happy to talk about the evidence on this uh, later on. And I'd say very importantly, in a society that is undergoing dramatic social change as we are in India, the growing gaps between the aspirations regarding sexuality and occupation and the prevailing social norms and expectations uh, in society more broadly, that might also be a very important explanation as to why suicide rates are so high in young people in uh, in countries like India uh, uh, compared to older people. uh, And especially when you contrast with developed countries. And again, let me show you just some examples of sex, self-explanatory uh, news articles that really tell you about the kinds of gaps that occur in the lives of young people, or the gaps to do with casteism, gaps to do with you know, the, the desires to pursue careers of their own choices, and the prevailing social norms uh, that actually crush those aspirations. And of course, and I've written about this only recently in the Indian Express, um, Uh, You know, I I think we all, as a collective society, must question the appalling pressures on young people to conform to sexuality and relationship norms that are a thousand years old, actually, and have failed to keep in line with the kinds of growing aspirations of young people. And I don't need to sort of specifically mention what's going on in our country, for everyone to be aware uh, that there are some very dangerous trends which will only further worsen the crisis Uh, for young people's mental health going forward. And then of course, on top of that, you've got the COVID situation. I use the word thrown under the bus because, you know, the truth is that we have really thrown young people under the bus. Uh, Young people are neither at the table we've talked about the kinds of policies that affect their lives so profoundly like for example the closure of educational institutions but also we fail to recognize that one of the most fundamental aspects of being a a young person is the need to have interpersonal and in-person contact with one's peers this is again a developmental reality and we've also thrown that under the bus ironically of course young people are the least affected by the virus itself, uh, and so they have had to bear the greatest burden uh, of the containment policies, even though they themselves are the least vulnerable when it comes uh, to uh, the actual virus. Which is why you see this fascinating uh, pattern. This comes from the US. Again, I use the US data because it's available. Uh, And this is uh, uh, the largest national longitudinal assessment of indicators of poor mental health uh, based on symptom reports in the last seven days being collected continuously. Uh, And what you can see here is between May and January, May last year and January this year, when the US is, of course, in the pandemic itself, you can see here um, that there has been. Uh, a dramatic increase in the uh, um, self-reported poor mental health indicators, up to 60% now in the most recent week that I have data for. And you can see a systematic, uh, uh, almost an incremental relationship between age and self-report. So that paradoxically, and I'll, I'll tell you why paradoxically, the younger you are, the worse is your mental health. The older you are, which is at the bottom, the better is your mental health. And this is paradoxical because if you remember, for a long time, we said it's elderly people who are going to be having greater problems with their mental health because, for example, they were more at risk of the virus, um, because they would suffer more loneliness, they would have more uh, issues to do with social isolation, etc. Instead, it's exactly the opposite. Older people have actually weathered this uh, pandemic a lot better than younger people have. And now we know why. I mean, you know, if you apply developmental science and the impact of containment policies on essential developmental needs, it is no surprise uh, that actually it's young people who have fared the worst when it comes to their mental health uh, during the pandemic. So I want to close out with some positive messaging. What's the way forwards? Uh, I want to uh, uh, really draw upon three important initiatives uh, that have really synthesized the evidence. I've been involved with all three of them. I've led two of them, the World Bank's uh, Disease Control Priorities Pro- uh, a Program, which looked at cost-effective interventions for scaling up uh, 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 mental health prevention and care, the Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development, uh, and then the Lancet Commission on Adolescent Health and Wellbeing, uh, which I also served on, and I'm just going to synthesize uh, the evidence across all of these because they all say pretty much the same thing. So the most important message is promoting youth mental health is everyone's business. It's not the business only of the health sector or indeed just the mental health sector, but actually it's a cross-cutting issue because if you remember the determinants, the social determinants of poor mental health in young people, you'll have seen that actually none of them are based in biology. They're actually based in the worlds that we have created uh, for young people. So we have to start with the world at home And this is particularly around adverse childhood experiences. We must remember that the poor mental health that we see in young people has in many cases, its origins in early childhood. We have to then consider the educational institutions in which young people will spend the majority of their waking hours um, in a variety of different evidence-based interventions, building social emotional competencies, promoting a healthy uh, school environment in which um, interpersonal respect and dignity is championed, inclusion is championed, and things like that. And of course, Improving access to appropriate clinical interventions for those who need it, but using the educational system as a platform rather than the health system. And then uh, at, at the societal level, uh, we really do have to be having a national conversation on progressive attitudes towards youth sexuality and relationships. As we have, I often tell, you know, parents who I speak to in schools, it's bizarre uh, that, you know, our, the, our parents' generation probably had their first sexual encounters before our kids' generation will, and they get completely shocked. They say, how is that possible? Not true. I had my first sexual encounter when I got married, and I say, yeah, when did you get married? So, oh, yeah, I got married when I was 18, and I say, yeah, well, do the maths and figure out what, when your kids will get married, and if you only permit uh, sexuality to be expressed after marriage, well, they'll have sex after you did. And so then they suddenly come, you know, confronted with the reality uh, that as age of marriage has gone ahead in time, which is a good thing, uh, we haven't actually kept progressively, uh, we haven't kept uh, our attitudes on sexuality in the same way, in a progressive way. And of course, we also need to engage and address issues that concern young people, such as uh, discrimination uh, against various groups in our country, caste, religion, etc, as well as climate change. The challenges, it has to be said, are enormous. I think currently, even in the Ministry of Health, there is a very narrow binary biomedical framing of mental health, which is focused on disorders, drugs, and diagnoses. Uh, And I think that this is something that young people as a demographic reject outright, and this is what Prabha also spoke to in her opening remarks. There's a lack of tailoring to the needs of specific subgroups of young people, particularly uh, uh, people who come from disadvantaged uh, uh, backgrounds, and I think For example, people who are sexual minorities in this country. Um, There's a lack of attention in mental health programs to social determinants. So the mental health programs are highly clinical. Uh, They focus only on symptoms, but they don't actually embrace and acknowledge that these symptoms occur not in a vacuum or just in the brain, but actually occur as part of the interaction of young people's lives with the social factors around them. We don't have enough mental health professionals, that goes without saying, Uh, and as I said, we have to rethink also how care and where care is provided, because even if you have mental health professionals, you have tons of mental health professionals, for example, in the US, young people as a developmental uh, uh, age group actually are very reluctant to seek help from professionals, there's a a degree of invincibility that young people have, which is that I'll fix it myself, or I'll fix it with my friends, but I'm not going to go and seek help uh, from a, a doctor and leave, leave us at a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so we've got to think of different ways in, in addressing this, and we and have to reimagine youth mental health, and this is where I draw on the large body of evidence that was synthesized uh, in those three reports. Um, first of all, we need to look beyond narrowly define and diagnose mental illness by offering a range of interventions that focus on the base of the pyramid, which is to say, communities, homes and schools uh, through task sharing of evidence-based interventions for prevention and care. We need to balance individual clinical interventions, which remains so much the focus of our national mental health program, with addressing structural and social determinants, and I've given you many examples of those across the early life course from childhood into young adulthood. We need to embrace digital tools, which I think are transforming our ability actually to reach uh, these, uh, this vast unmet need uh, in our population. And above all, we need to have youth at the center of all decision making, um, you know, from what matters to how it should be addressed. And I'm so glad that we have uh, 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 at least one, if not more, uh, young person on the panel. And I'm hoping very much that we hear about uh, their perspective on how young people can be at the center of all policy decisions concerning them. I want to end by uh, just describing an example. It's just one example, and it's only a drop in the ocean, really, of what needs to be done or what Sangat has been doing in educational institutions. This is in secondary schools in Bihar, in Delhi, and in Goa, and now in, in Maharashtra. And what you can see here is exactly this kind of approach. A one-size-fits-all approach does not work. We need to think of school-wide interventions that affect the whole school environment, targeting the social determinants of poor mental health. We need to raise mental health literacy in young people uh, by engaging them in the classroom. And then we need to provide interventions at group level uh, for building social-emotional competencies, to provide individual-level clinical interventions uh, by by frontline uh, providers, school counselors, And then more sophisticated interventions for those who need it. And you can see the pyramid is is deliberate. As you go from the whole population, you will see that at each step, there'll be fewer and fewer people who need the more intensive intervention in that step. And that is exactly the whole model of stepped care. For those of you who are interested in learning more, please write to me. Many of these interventions have been published, also evaluated in randomized controlled trials, uh, and I'm very happy to share these with you. And we also have a slew of videos that actually show uh, these interventions in in practice. I also wanna show a very brief uh, uh, video here, and I'm just gonna make sure that I can actually share the screen uh, with showing the video, um, the sound, because actually, uh, the sound is quite important for this video. It's only a 60-second a, a, a a, a video. I'm going to show you a video that shows another pro, program that Sangath has launched, which is really about engaging young people uh, in storytelling to disclose their stories of mental health as a way of combating the stigma and promoting appropriate health seeking
0: It's not always easy to talk openly about our mental health. Both our struggles and our victories. But when we do, we let others know that they are not alone. Sharing our stories with others can inspire them, offer hope, and help them. Manmela is a museum about young people's mental health stories from India. We feature stories from different parts of the country that tackle common misconceptions about mental health highlight common problems, and share information on how to seek help and build resilience. Our storytellers work with a team of researchers, writers, and designers who help bring their stories to life using art and technology, enabling viewers to interact with their worlds as they travel through journeys of finding hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. Our stories matter, and telling them can make a big difference.
5: So to conclude, I think the guiding principles of action of all these interventions that I've described is to provide young people with information, to restore hope that things will get better, to enhance their own agency so that they are empowered to take the steps necessary not only to recover but to stay well, to respect their dignity and their rights, particularly of groups that have been historically marginalized, and to always focus on the science of what works. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to end by saying this generation of adolescents and young people can transform all our futures, uh, and there is no greater priority, and I'm quoting directly from the Lancet Commission on Adolescent Health, there's no greater priority in global health than ensuring that they have the resources to do so. Thank you, and I'm going to hand back to the chair. Uh,
4: Thank you so much, Vikram, for taking us through the shocking rates of suicide in the young people in our country and from there to risk factors talking about the social determinants and particularly um, today's environment where we know that there are huge challenges that young people are facing particularly in the area of relationships and and, uh, sexuality and the disadvantaged youth and from there on talking a little bit about COVID and its impact and then moving on to possible uh, solutions. Um, instead of saying that the location of solutions should be outside the uh, mental health and the health services, really into the community. Um, I was just reading a, a, a byline somewhere that uh, you need less psychiatrists to have better he- mental health outcomes. So um, maybe it's you know it's 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 very important and, and to, for us to think about solutions which are much beyond the the traditional mental health services um, and so i'm going to now hand over to um, urvashi prasad who uh, is uh, from a policy uh, public policy specialist from the office of the vice chairman Nitya ayog and i would very much like urushi to address some of the policy uh, you know uh, initiatives that you think are important to address this problem
1: based on what you've heard thank you uh, i just want to confirm am i audible
6: yes ma'am yes, you're you audible
1: but yeah you are not
6: there are you using your video ma'am
1: no because you know i'm in a low no bandwidth <laughs> area okay, so i'm okay. Uh, okay. avoiding that um so yeah i mean first of all thank you very much for uh, inviting me for this and um, you know i've actually done one of my master's programs at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and I think more than one of my classmates would be very happy that you know I'm sharing this platform today with uh, Professor Patel so I think this is uh, this is this is quite an honor because he's obviously a very very well-known name in this space and for people working in the public health space in general so uh, yes I think you know as you said I'll make uh, two three uh, sort of high level points a lot of which Uh, you know, a lot of the things that Professor Patel said obviously resonated uh, from a policy perspective as well. And I'll just highlight two, three areas um, that, that, you know, I think are are really important and also some of the areas that we are trying to uh, push through our work here uh, at the NITI in the policy space. So I think the very first, you know, he spoke at length about these statistics. and, And I think that's uh, you know, obviously, the, you know where we start, and that's where the whole policy making process starts as well. And apart from you know making sure that these statistics are much you know available much more regularly, um, at least you know at the state level, uh, if if not at more granular levels, um, we also need to look into how they really play out, you know across different, Uh, you know, socioeconomic groups across different geographies, because India, of course, as we know, uh, is is incredibly diverse. So it's very difficult for us to, uh, you know, sit in one place, sit in New Delhi or wherever and, you know, try and make a mental health policy for the whole country, especially when we don't have this kind of data uh, available at, you know, enough disaggregation. Um, You know, we spoke of, he spoke of women and and young women, and and this is something I had written about as well, that, you know, the global burden of disease data had shown something very similar that, you know, in the 15 to 39 year age group, um, you know, the the most significant uh, reason for for death was actually suicide, and 71% of those were women. Now, if we just pick that up, you know, we do need to go more deeply into you know, why and how that's playing out, you know, urban women versus women in rural areas, you know, cutting across different castes, different uh, social religious groups, different income groups. So I think we do need much more granularity at that level um, in order to really make our policies effective. Otherwise we are sort of trying to make one size fits all as, as he put it as well. And that really, you know, clearly is not going to work in a country of, you know, India's size and scale and diversity. So I think that's the very first point. The next two points, uh, you know, are a little bit, I would speak from the health system perspective as as well. Um, And and I think the first is how do we really uh, include mental health, make it front and center into our public health and primary care space. And of course, when I say public health by, you know, it's implicit that it is very multidisciplinary. We are not just talking of the clinical or the medical aspects, but we are actually talking of an interdisciplinary approach there. And that is still missing uh, for, you know, to a large extent in, in our public health and, and primary care. Now, you know many of you would know about the Ayushman Bharat program, and we are trying to set up these health and wellness centers. Uh, but how do we really make them different from what's happened in the past? A lot of our primary care system has historically focused on uh, reproductive maternal child health issues and some infectious diseases how do we really bring in you know, not just NCDs, not just non-communicable diseases, but actually mental health? Because even in NCDs, you know, people find it almost easier to do a screening for hypertension or diabetes. But the moment we say we, we have to look at mental health, it sort of becomes uh, a much higher uh, sort of level to, uh, to achieve. So I think that's the challenge we are currently facing. We do want these centers to provide comprehensive primary healthcare service, but how do we truly operationalize that, again, you know, given all our diversities and all our differences and challenges across states. So I think that is something that's a big priority for us. And when we look at these health and wellness centers, sort of making them hubs uh, in the communities where we are actually involving the young people, we're involving the schools, the colleges, so that it's truly a multidisciplinary approach. It's not just the sort of health system, you know, operating in isolation. So I think that is something which is a big priority uh, for us. And at least, you know, from the Niti Ayog side, um, I, I work with Dr. Vinod Paul on this, and we're really trying to push, you know, mental health uh, along with some other, you know, such critical services into this whole domain of, of public and primary healthcare, rather than limiting it to thinking about just pushing people into hospitals or, you know, just sending them for medical care or, or you know, just going to specialists. Now, of course, those are critical and that is a shortage that we need to address. Uh, but that cannot be the only pillar, uh, you know, that we rely on. And the final is, you know, moving on to the secondary and tertiary levels. And again, as part of Ayushma and Bharat, we have a health insurance program, um, the Pradhan Mantri Jan Arogya Yojana. And at this point, it doesn't actually include outpatient uh, care. And therefore, you know, if you were to just have a consultation um, uh, with a mental health professional, with a psychiatrist, you know, that that would probably not get covered at this point. So that's something that, again, we're making a case for that, you know, that will also help to kind of make it a little more normal, you know, going for a consultation like this would not feel like such a big deal, you know, it it would become more like going for any other consultation. Um, And also, of course, it would help to cover the costs for for a large number of people who today cannot simply afford it. Uh, So I think that is something that that, you know, at the secondary and tertiary level, we're also pushing for, of course, we need to address the supply side issues, as I said, we have an acute shortage. Um, off of the specialists of the psychiatrists um, but but we do need to at least include it you know in the package and convey that message that you know if you're going for a consultation for mental health that's perfectly fine and and that is something that you should do uh, if you are facing an issue so i think those are you know really sort of three points uh, and and a lot of what he said you know really resonated with me as a, as a public health professional but you know also in my work i'm doing here um, and i thought i'll just highlight and, you know, put out
4: these three points. Thank you. Um, thank you, Rishi, for raising some very important uh, points and particularly about the disaggregated data capture, which I think is so important for policymakers to to decide where to focus on and how to focus. Um, and also to be highlighting what should be the role of the health and wellness centers. And we'd probably come back to that later and talk, to, talk a bit to, Vikram about, you know, what should be the role of, of a center like that, um, which is more uh, supposed to be more health-promotive. And an important aspect that you brought about is how do you integrate mental health into existing health uh, services like maternal health. Um, so uh, just to move forward, I'm going to call on Dr. Aparna Joshi, who is the project Di- director of call and Sukoon from TISS Mumbai to Uh, to comment and discuss uh, some of the issues raised by Dr. Vikram.
7: Thank you, Dr. Prabha, and uh, really glad to be here. And uh, I think uh, very, very fortunate to listen to all the other speakers also. Uh, So um, I've been told that I'll have three to four minutes, so I'll try to be as brief as possible. Uh, The location from which I'm going to say what I'm going to say is multifold. One is I'm, I'm a faculty, I work with young people. I work with iCall, which and one of our largest demographics of callers as well as emailers and people who chat with us are young people. And I have a son um, and I struggle uh, as a mother and sometimes I feel I must have done something right for him to turn out to be a good human being. So I think these are diverse locations. Uh, some of the points that I'm going to talk are Perhaps you know the iterations of the earlier insights, but some uh, which are originating from my work with young people. So I think one of the questions Prabha you yourself had uh, raised was how do you generate demand? And uh, if I look at iCall's journey, I know that uh, Dr. Patel also said that young people feel that they are invincible and they may not need perhaps you know mental health services offered by professionals. And iCall has struggled over almost nine years. To listen to young people and find out what are the ways in which we can take the issue of mental health to them. A few of the messages is don't talk perhaps about the language of mental health, which is synonymized with mental illness in the popular kind of a discourse, but talk about a language which young people can understand, language of stress, language of disruptions, language of mood, language of relationships, And also definitely try multiple strategies to young people, uh, reach out to young people and not just social media, which is, uh, you know, uh, only privileged sections have access, but also reach out to, you know, young people through different partnerships, even through government programs, which are meant for young people. So that is one of the lessons that I would definitely, you know, like to share. The second one is uh, youth are not a homogenous mass. I think a point which has already been made, and there are vulnerabilities within vulnerabilities. Yeah? And a lot of programs are looking at young people as if you know they are uh, all the same, but uh, when we hear stories of people who belong to certain castes, religions, sexualities, abilities, uh, or genders, uh, you will understand that it's not the same, the privileges are not the same and vulnerabilities are multiple. The next one is I was just thinking about you know what do young people call us for or what do they write to us for, and some of the top issues have nothing to do with mental illness. I think we have been talking about bringing young people's mental health out of the clutches of mental illness discourse, and these are uh, simple things such as you know problems of everyday life. I would say inability to manage their emotions, uh, inability to have discuss their relationship issues how to propose, how to break up, how to come to terms with losses within relationships, how to deal with conflicts. There are concerns about sexuality, gender. Of course, there are age appropriate, developmentally appropriate concerns of academics, career. And one of the very important concerns that young people are bringing, which is suicide, but self-harm also. One of them very neglected issue and we are finding a rise in self-harm uh, among young people. But these are issues, when I look at them, I realize that these are issues which are developmentally appropriate, but do not have platforms for addressing, do not have platforms for free expression. And therefore, the anonymity, confidentiality and the safety of a digital uh, platform helps people talk about these issues of everyday living. The next lesson that I would definitely like to talk about is if you look at, for example, 2019 NCRB uh, suicide data also, you will find that suicide, unlike uh, many of the developing countries in India, is not a problem of mental illness, but it's a problem of everyday living issues, family problems, substance abuse, marriage related issues, violence. We all know that uh, data in suicide in India is very gendered. And it is very linked to gendered stressors that are experienced by men, women, and people of different genders in India. Uh, it's also important to, uh, from our insights to remember that uh, Indian uh, youth, again, uh, with a caveat that there is no one uh, monolithic identity, uh, that is, is is in the, you know, sort of uh, bombarded with transitional messages of modernity, of collectivism, of traditionality, and is trying to find some ways to navigate through these messages in their own ways, but is uh, struggling hard. Now, uh, these are the issues. Now I'll just quickly talk about if you have to respond to these issues, what are the learning lessons quickly? One is I think uh, listening to young people and not adults deciding What are the cut-paste models, uh, which are adult models or child-based models? For example, ICOL has started an entire training program of working with young people's mental health issues because we realized that all training programs are either child-centric or they are adult-centric. Models are also cut-paste of adults to young people or children to young people. And we require young people's voices to hear what is it that they want. Young people are also telling us that they want an entire gamut of responses, not just clinical services. They want, and, and through different methodologies. Maybe they want support groups, maybe they want technology based, uh, maybe they just want a simple place to hang out and they will feel better. It doesn't have to be every time talk. Maybe they require art based work and it has to be preventive, promotive, and interventive, and not just interventive. Uh, just last two points I want to quickly make. One is, I think just as we talked about several opportunities that lie in many other responses that we talked about, technology being definitely one, there are government programs which are specifically meant for young people. For example, I call works very closely with RKSK. 2014, this program was launched. I've been a part of evaluation uh, you know, studies also and training. I think school counseling program is coming in a big way under Aishman Bharat. There are several developmental programs on youth development, poverty, mental health is a development issue. And definitely, you know youth uh, mental health should be a cross cutting issue across all these programs. And the last point I want to make is young people are not only consumers of services, but they are also change agents. And now we are working with young people as to how can young people Create youth-driven services to understand other young people. So these are some of the messages that I have learned from my own encounters with young people, and definitely from my work with ICO. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Aparna. I think that was a, that that really segues so beautifully from what uh, Vikram spoke about. You know, listening to youth um, and creating services which are very participatory, and also making sure that the the uh, services which are available are not focusing on your mental illness because the youth don't come in from that window it's more about problems of living and distress um, so thank you very much for that and the great work that you do with i call uh, i would now like to move on to dr manjula who's a professor in the department of clinical psychology at uh, at nimhans um, and while she has a very clinical hat um, she also works uh, at the Nimhan Center for Wellbeing, uh, which is an urban mental health center uh, located in a middle-class locality, completely outside of an institution, and it has all the sort of tick marks of what is called a youth-friendly mental health service. Um, the service also has something called Youth Pro, which what like what uh, Aparna mentioned, which is uh, for the youth, by the youth. Uh, And Manjula uh, works a lot with young people who are struggling with academic issues. So I'm going to ask Manjula to discuss some of the issues raised uh, by uh, Professor Vikram Patel. Manjula.
8: Uh, Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, uh, Dr. Prabhachandra, And uh, I'm thankful for this opportunity for uh, participating in this program. And I'll be most probably reiterating most of the points uh, highlighted by the previous speakers. So I, I think like I agree totally agree with uh, know, uh, with Dr. aparna who said that the problems are most probably the everyday problems rather than having some mental illnesses. So that is what is my experience also in working with the NIMAD Center for Wellbeing, where I see a number of you know, ad- young adults and adolescents you know, coming for uh, emotional uh, regulation difficulties or having difficulties in relationships and they just need very, very few number of sessions. So, so like you know, this, my uh, understanding again, it is like similar to the uh, uh, Dr. Appa that like it has to be a broad-based approach wherein like you know, that we are addressing the uh, simple mental health concerns which may not be the problems, and all of us know that there is enough knowledge that mental health needs of across these age groups are there, and and uh, that there is sufficient information to formulate developmental approach to mental you know, wellness or mental health. And then like, you no, know, these are not easy that there are multiple factors that contribute also. And when we look at the kind of the programs or the attempts that are made to address these issues, we see that there are very, very issue specific kind of you no know, um, uh, interventions or programs or like there are very few like broad
6: based programs like that. Ma'am, and sorry uh, to disturb, Ma'am, are you using your camera? We cannot see you. You are using Yeah. Camera yeah sorry please go on yes
8: so, so yeah can you see now yeah okay okay so then i think what is like uh, lacking or like what uh, most of the mental health professionals feel is that there is a, a lacunae in terms of like the the promotion of mental uh, no, wellness uh, when it comes to taking all the stakeholders into consideration like whether it is only Completely focused on youth only, or like you know that it is like very very specific, and we are not considering all of the stakeholders when we are planning, you know, these programs. And uh, various you know policies you know, also have a component. Like it can be educational policies, or it can be women-related policies. They have a component of mental health. But then whether we have you know sufficient systems to monitor and evaluate like you know h- how it has been implemented and whether it is addressing the concerns what i'm trying to say is that the evaluation part and the outcome part so it may be difficult but then but then do we have the component in these programs is the the question that i had and uh, maybe that you uh, know that uh, uh integrating all these systems together because uh, that we don't communicate that is what is my you know experience that across the these uh, systems and the policies do we communicate and do we have you know integrate these uh, um, mental health you know uh, the, the programs so that it is it is addressing all the levels of uh, uh, the requirements of the you know young people yeah so these are some of the points that i want to make thank you
4: Thank you Manjula for reiterating what uh, you know. Aparna uh, has also uh, mentioned and about kind of throwing up a little bit of a challenge saying how do you actually do the integration uh, in m- many of the other programs that people have talked about um, and how do you build partnerships and maybe There needs to be a methodology uh, for uh, health professionals and mental health professionals to learn to build a partnership because i think we're really poor at that in terms of as as a professional group about how do you actually talk to other groups and other programs about uh, mental health and how do you uh, you know advocate for integrating mental health into so many of the other programs i think we've done really badly on that and um and, and we need to we need to learn these methodologies I'm going to ask um, Saddam to uh, chip in. Sadam is a founder of the Ya yeah, All the Youth Network in Manipur, and we're really waiting to hear your views about what you've heard so far and your aspirations and, and hopes uh, for youth mental health in India.
6: Hello, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Like this is a great opportunity for me to see everyone by face from whom i have only learned through you know papers <laughs> so vikram sir and everyone thank you so much and Impre. thank you so much so uh, just uh, i was listening to everyone and you know there are certain things which uh, also kind of connected really well with me and when i am um, representing and i am talking as a young person in this uh, in this meeting also uh, the, there have been certain things which i would like to highlight uh, So one was also I I got the opportunity to uh, be a part of Manmela, which I was mentioning about. That I use my story to connect with. You'll have to be a bit louder,
4: Saddam. Bit louder.
6: Yes, keep the mic close to your mouth. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. Is it audible? Better. Much better. Thank you. Okay. So uh, I was saying I was a part of Manmela also where I shared my story uh, through Sangat and it's okay to talk, which also really helped me personally and also many young people who were uh, you know facing this intersectional problem of sexuality, substance use, mental health, conflict, and you know migration. So uh, my story became something which was so many issues were put together and you know when sir uh, was talking about you know, different 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 uh, uh, how to say adversities. So all those adversities were were fit in my story. So because I'm from Manipur, which is in the conflict zone already, and facing all this issue related to substance use, and I identify myself as gay, so I, I am sexually, uh, sexual, belong to a sexual minority and faces discrimination in that way. And also, you know, there's a very much of growing gap between I, I, I should say, frankly, uh, honestly, about the northeast and the main mainland Indian part, of how there's a huge divide of information, uh, how uh, a huge divide of resources, and also, a lot of uh, you know um, issues when it comes to uh, using a using one model for development, like when we are not uh, you know most of the programs that has been implemented are in the model of one India model and. When it comes to uh, population in the margins, like the Northeast or many other parts of the country which are in the margins, they do not connect with the program easily. And that becomes one of the biggest challenges to access it. So uh, there are two things which I uh, wanted to say was, say was the data and availability. So there is no data because there has been no focus properly on young people and adolescents. If I can give the example of Manipur also, and also from the parts of Northeast of how, you know, uh, even this government programs uh, like uh, RKSK, uh, Ayushman Bharat or Adolescence Education Program or school health projects, and there are so many programs, but they do not, they show zero interest in adolescents and young people. You know, when we go to the department and when we go to the Adolescence Friendly Health Clinics set up by them, they do not have much information about anything. The, only good thing about all these programs are beautifying their offices. And there is there is no adolescent people, there's no young people going there and accessing those services. They are not friendly at all. <laughs> this is our experience. We have been to the Directorate of Health, we have been to the PhDs. we have been to schools, we do school intervention programs independently. But when we saw so from the field was why young people are not accessing is because they are not including young people and offices and offices. Where the services are provided for young people, there are no young people at all. You know, uh, it is it is led totally and it is run totally by, you know, people who are who do not know, you know, what young people want really want. So uh, that is one thing. And and what happens after that is young people lose lose their trust in this program. They neglect this program, even though we are, we are doing awareness, and even though we are doing you know, so many programs, they uh, lost their interest when we said that this is a government program, because in their idea, they realized that nothing will change. So what we as young people are doing is, we are localizing the support system. Like when Aparna Ma'am was saying about iCall, most of the calls, I was talking to her also last time when I was in this, That uh, most of the people from the northeast or from the margins, because of language barriers, sometimes this uh, 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 you know the calls doesn't go through properly. So, uh, for example, as as an organization, we got more than you know 500 calls. But again, the problem was we are not skilled. We are mostly community-based, community-led organizations. So we are not skilled to provide all those services and we have to, uh, you know, refer all these calls to all the helpline numbers. But when we refer to other people, the problem is language and the issues that people from our region cannot relate to uh, a service provider providing, you know, uh, services in terms of conflict or in terms of intergenerational trauma or substance use because the issues that we are facing here are totally different. So uh, 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 this, Helpline numbers are very much inclusive, but it can be more strengthened in a way to become more inclusive, and also more affirmative of not in only in terms of sexualities or you know minorities, but in terms of languages also. Maybe one thing which we can learn from everyone is that uh, teach us to provide support in our own regions, you know, train us so that we can provide this localized support system. And the biggest challenge for young people, or uh, young youth-serving organization or youth-led organization, are no one is interested to fund them because still in the idea of m- most of the grant makers or supporters, they still think that young people cannot handle responsibilities and they are unaccount—they cannot be, you know, uh, considered accountable. So these are uh, some of the things which I wanted to uh, add. Other things have been said, and yeah, thank you so much. Thank
4: you. Sadam, I think you raised some very important issues and thank you so much for that and maybe you're right we should have had less gray-haired uh, people are here and more sort of young people who are actually the consumers honestly uh, but maybe Impre will do that next time uh, but yeah, it's, it's also but, very but, yeah. important.
6: <laughs> but this, this is very important because one one of the biggest thing which we need is handholding from from the ones who have shown the way. Without them, we can without you, we cannot do anything. But the thing is, I am putting this uh, effort uh, to to the panel here because I want you to know that you know there are people who are committed to this work. There are young people who are committed to do this work, and we would definitely like to you know move forward with your help, uh, with your assistance, train us. We will be the second generation, next generation of people who will be you know, uh, giving down this training to the general uh, millennials and Jets, jets. you know, so uh, we are already becoming old also, I'm reaching 30 so I'm also becoming old, I cannot do for the millennials now, so train us, that's the only thing, support us in a way, thank you. Thank you, Saderman.
4: you know, it's so hopeful to, uh, you know, there's a sense of optimism while we listen to you that There are so many ideas. And I think some of the things that for me were very important is to not have a one India, pan India model and to be as regional and as local as we can get. Uh, Because I'm sure even like you said, even in the Northeast, there are sort of so many differences between regions. It's not all one. Even within a city, there are so many variations. But particularly in certain regions, there is a need to be extremely focused and, you know, working through people who've gone through conflict, intergenerational trauma. I think these are things that we need to also educate ourselves before uh, being able to offer help. And and I think the one important message to me here was while we're talking about participation from the youth, etc., I think you kind of highlighted that you know we always talk about community engagement how to engage people i think and and it's always very challenging like who is the community how do you engage the community but i think youth is a very good um, group who are definitely waiting to engage themselves in in various efforts and in some way if we can start a movement of engaging them and training them in at least providing some support and uh, directing them towards other services it's, it's probably very important and Thanks for those messages and for your wisdom. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm going to move on now to Dr. Paolo Mi, who is a professor in the Department of Clinical Psychology and works a lot with young people uh, who uh, come with stress, um, also young working people, uh, particularly in cities and urban areas where there's a lot of stress related to IT professionals, and others, uh, and also works a lot in relationship issues. So I'm going to ask Paulo Me to address maybe those two areas, a little bit on employment related issues uh, with young people and relationship
3: problems. Thank you, Dr. Prabha and thanks for having me on this panel. Uh, it was really a pleasure to listen to Dr. Patel and I've had the fortunate uh, opportunities to be associated with two of his projects of course one the more recent one that he talked about uh, which is about young people um, and i think to respond to dr prabha's uh, question uh, a little while ago we were talking about the academic challenges that people have faced during the covid i think a lot of young people have also faced uh, employment challenges during this time we are talking about urban youth who are attending colleges who are attending you know, educational courses, but a lot of people also lost their jobs or were displaced because of the COVID and there was a lot of stress associated with that. Uh, To digress from your question and point, if I may, uh, I'm also associated with the uh, Enhanced Center for Wellbeing where we see a lot of young people who come in with stress-related conditions, not necessarily diagnosable conditions, but a lot of other relationship stress. Uh, This could be at workplace, this could be with their families. Uh, what I find important from what Dr. Vikram also talked about is to enhance their sense of agency. And I think that's very important uh, for me, even as a clinician, when we're talking about involving them in the interventions, involving them in the kind of changes that they can make and uh, the the problems that they have, they have are the problems of living. But of course, it also calls for a lot of dialogue with the people they live with, which includes the families. Uh, which include people they're often associated with at the workplace. So I think what we're all talking about is a lot of conversations and dialogues that are necessary uh, I mean, to be engaged in so that the youth don't be left out because again we're, a lot of times when we talk about interventions and we talk about, you know, what evidence-based practices are, we're talking about from adult interventions and we somehow feel that that's also applicable to adolescents. So even as a clinician, I find that we've had to make modifications, we've had to Ask the young person what they would like in the intervention. How would they like for us to talk to their families? Would they even like for us to talk to their families at all? So I think that dialogue and conversation is very essential. And also I think whether it is young people at work or in education institutions, urban or rural, I think equipping them with skills that Dr. Manjula talked about. These are trans diagnostic skills or you know skills that uh, are, are varied in nature right from self-regulation of which emotional regulation is a very integral part but off late i've seen a lot of young people having difficulties managing everyday activities and the stress doesn't come just from managing just relationships but also everyday you know uh, the regular habits of reaching work managing their routines and so on and we've often had to focus back on skill building for them so that's another thing that i think is very important to shift responsibility involve them as change agents while you're having a dialogue with the family and see how much you can engage them in also. On a positive note, I've had uh, young people also coming in where they've taken charge and they've actually developed interventions for, you know, conditions that they've had, but they want others to be helped with. We've had a seminar organized by a young, uh, two young people where they called upon us to, you know, speak to them and they had actually organized a mental health webinar which is very promising and i feel they you know they're doing a lot of work in that area and there's another young girl who's developed an application for management of an anxiety disorder which i think is is very important to see that, that they have the skills and how best we could you know utilize that to take the message forward uh, i think tailor-making interventions at a clinician level is possible but but i don't know how possible it is at a public health level where At some point it is going to address many general needs and general skills, but then I think it would be the responsibility of people implementing them to also see how best they could then individualize it. Uh, But we do have a lot of young people walking into our clinic as well. And uh, I think it's, it's a positive note that they bring in their friends also because they feel somebody is not doing well and that they need help. So there's a lot of awareness and there is a positive note on that as well. I don't know if I addressed all your points, I may have digressed to something else, but I thought that, uh, you know, we do often end up talking about urban youth, but yes, semi-urban, rural are sort of in between. Uh, I know a lot of people who lost their jobs and couldn't find one during this period, and that was the source of stress for a lot of them.
4: Thanks, Paulumi, for sort of raising the whole uh, Area of you know employment and relationships, and also about how uh, young people want to be part of the whatever treatment or or you know getting better and in and and also uh, wanting to have opportunities to participate in uh, methodologies of uh, you know interventions. I think and find wanting to have that space. Um, I'm going to finally ask the. I think the final discussant, uh, Dr. Shomitra Patare, who's a Director, Center for Mental Health Law and Policy, ILS Pune, uh, who's probably got the most number of followers in any mental health professional in India on Twitter, I think. Um, so, Swamitra, we would like your comments please.
9: Thank you. Thank you, Prabha. That's a very interesting <laughs> introduction about the Twitter thing. Thank you so much. Uh, Uh, Thank you for asking me to participate and I think that was wonderful uh, the way uh, Vikram, uh, you know, in a very short 25 minute presentation summarized uh, a lot of this for us. Uh, I was going to tackle a couple of or I wanted to highlight a couple of issues that Vikram did bring up. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, the, the whole suicide rates thing that we talk about and among youth in the India. And I wanted to just point out two, uh, one or two points about it. One is that uh, a lot of our numbers, uh, you know, the, the broad numbers actually hide a lot of diversity. Uh, so, for example, uh, regional diversity, as even Sadam brought it up. Uh, you know, the numbers are hugely and regionally diverse, and so that they'll be very different in different parts of the country. Uh, the second point about the suicide numbers is, uh, and Vikram did touch upon uh, upon uh, the issue of uh, particular subgroups, but I think there can be no discussion about uh, these issues in India without touching upon uh, upon the whole issue of caste uh, and what uh, the corrosive effects of caste-based discrimination that it does uh, for a lot of young people. Uh, and especially in uh, in times like this, when opportunities are going to be few and fewer, uh, then the marginalized are going to end up getting more marginalized. Uh, and so I think if we are going to address uh, you know, while we talk about gender as a big issue and that needs to be taken on board, I think we also need to uh, really address the elephant in the room in India, which is which is caste-based discrimination, which leads to uh, all kinds of mental health impacts, and which is also has uh, differential impacts uh, for suicide in India. The second point I wanted to uh, make from what Vikram said, and Vikram brought up this issue of social determinants of mental health. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, and I don't have an answer to this. I'm just raising this as a question rather than proposing a solution. My concern has been that when we say social determinants of mental health, uh, what ends up still happening is that it still is a health issue and the social determinants are something that we need to keep in mind. So, you know, every mental health professional in their training will undergo this whole notion of social determinants of mental health. My concern though, is that the social determinants of mental health are now so overwhelming in many ways uh, that actually what the health sector and the mental health sector is doing uh, is almost inadequate. It's a little bit like when a dam has burst and you're trying to remove the water with buckets. Uh, and you don't address the dam. Uh, You know, someone memorably put it uh, about what mental health services end up doing is that we are mopping the floor with all the taps on. Uh, And so unless we actually address the point at which things happen, uh, you know, the health sector is really only the uh, holding the baby, so as to say, for all the things that are going wrong uh, in our social sector. And and why do I say this? I mean, with, with respect to suicide, for example, Uh, Prabha, you would know, and others who worked in the suicide sphere would know that we hardly have any suicide prevention interventions, which make a dent of 5%, 10% here and there in suicide rates. I mean, hardly any good evidence-based interventions, which can bring about reduction in suicide rates. What if I told you that there was a suicide prevention intervention, which could reduce suicide rates by 20%, 50%, 60%. I mean, you would jump at that, isn't it? you would say, hey, that's it. If something going to reduce suicides by 60% or 50%, then we should be doing that rather than wasting our time with many other things that we end up doing. Well, actually, we do have such an intervention. I mean, if you now there is evidence from two or three countries, which large studies, really large studies, uh, the, the Brazil study is a huge one. Uh, there is a study from Indonesia, which targeted 10% of the poor. Uh, in across Indonesia. And the Indonesian study showed an 18% or 20% reduction in suicides among beneficiaries uh, of cash transfers. Okay, people getting cash transfers having 20% reduction in the rates of suicide. Uh, the, the, The Brazil study is even more interesting, which shows a 50 to 60 percent reduction in suicide rates among the recipients. And the Brazil study is huge uh, and over many years. And and what is very interesting about the Brazil study is that the effect was stronger among young people and among women. And I think that's a very important point. So, uh, you know, I I think that the cash transfers is not a health sector intervention, but if it's going to have such a huge uh, impact on something like suicide rates, then we should be actively considering it even as health professionals because otherwise we are just holding the baby for it. Uh, the the point about cash transfers also brings me to the other issue which is that while cash transfers can mitigate some of these effects uh, and, and I, I'm not at all arguing not for doing them but, but there is something more that cash transfers uh, can't do which is Uh, you know the corrosive effects of long-term unemployment and I think what COVID is going to end up doing I mean if there's anything that COVID is doing to young people today are two big issues Uh, one is long-term unemployment and what does the future hold for me Uh, and what does long-term unemployment or having no jobs uh, do to young people in terms of their mental makeup in terms of uh, how they perceive the world and how they perceive their society and their own roles in it Uh, the effects on self-esteem and the effects uh, on how you feel about yourself and your society. Now, that is something that that cash transfers can't mitigate. And so while we can give people money and that takes care of some of the problems in the short term, it is not addressing the longer term issues around the disruption of Education, the disruption of uh, unemployment opportunities that we don't have now. So, you know, to summarize, I I think that uh, my concern with uh, with a lot of uh, the mental health issues is that while we keep on saying there are social determinants of mental health, it ends up becoming still a health issue. And I'm not talking to the convert. I'm not talking about the people here who are the converted. We all wouldn't do that. But if you go out and talk to the man on the street, the average man on the street. Uh, if you said social determinants of mental health, they would still say mental health. Ah, mental health, it's a mental health issue. Uh, and the determinants are seen as something, a minor kind of a thing. Whereas in reality, for young people, the social determinants are actually the determinants of mental health in many ways. Uh, and we are not addressing that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Vikram brought up this whole issue of uh, childhood adversity. Uh, what is very interesting is that. There are studies from 1960s and 70s you know all of us who grew up in that era uh, Prabha and Vikram and all would remember uh, that childhood adversity the Brown and Harris model was something that we were taught when we were trained at in the 60s about the whole corrosive effect of childhood adversity on on long-term depression in women uh, and it's been like 40 years and we've done nothing about it while we keep on coming up with newer and newer interventions and newer and newer research on other causes Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that we already know which we are not addressing at the moment and my my plea to all of us would be that let's look at what we know and let's see what we can do about the things that we do know about so I'll stop here thank you so much for asking me to be at this function and also this has been a really interesting uh, kind of thought-provoking discussion around
4: Uh, thank you, Shometro, uh, for raising some very important issues and particularly the issue of, uh, of cash transfer and how uh, economic enhancement and improvement actually can have a great effect on uh, mental health in, in certain periods and certain times and how, um, how the interventions need to sort of cater to what is happening in society at that particular point. Um, we have about five minutes left. Uh, and we've raised many, many issues. Uh, There are quite a few questions, uh, but many of the questions have been answered uh, by the speakers here. Uh, So I'm sure those people who have asked the questions would have got some of the answers. Um, A a few key questions to Dr. Vikram before we finish, which I have sort of gleaned out of the uh, many
6: questions which are here. Uh, The first (laughs) one Uh, is
4: about- Sorry.
6: If you'd like, we can extend the session to 10, 15 minutes so that
4: Okay, maybe ten if minutes, but everybody victim, else. Is it okay? I I think people have other stuff going on, so I'm five going, ten
6: minutes. Okay, so I'm going so to that ask really-
4: two questions yes. to Vikram, and then. Uh, Arjun,
5: I'm sorry, I have a hard stop at one uh, yeah, o'clock. So, so, uh, so I'm I think he Sorry is on, about that.
4: So I'm just going <laughs> right, to ask you, Vikram. Uh, the, there's one question on the new educational policy, and do you think that that's going to make a difference uh, in terms of the mental health of young people because it sort of handles to some extent, you know, skills as well as competition, etc.
5: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, my reading of it suggests that it's definitely a progressive advance on the existing education policy. Uh, I I guess, you know, the devil always lies in the detail of how you implement what is a, a subject that is split between center and state. And as you know, this is the same problem with health. Um, you know, that there are very good central policies uh, that are there for health, for example, the national health mission, but the level to which they're implemented are entirely dependent on states. So one has to watch and wait and see how it's going to be implemented. I wanted to say one um, thing uh, 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 um, about, um, no, actually, just, just ask me the questions, because we don't have much time. But yes, I think it should hopefully point towards a better uh, a better outcome. I just want to reiterate the point that uh, Samitra made about that we, when we look at uh, uh, interventions, we have to look outside the health sector. Uh, and cash transfers actually a really great example of an evidence-based intervention uh, uh, that he that he referred to.
4: Yeah, I mean, most of the other questions, like I said, have been handled. But there's one question about, you know, the medicalization of psychiatry, and uh, somebody cryptically asked, uh, "All that is fine, but if not psychiatry, what else?" So. Yeah, I
5: think I think this, actually many of the conversations of my fellow panelists have really tied in together. I don't think it's an either or. I think we should move over with this idea. It's either psychiatry or something else. I don't think that's the correct way of, uh, of viewing this. I think what we have to embrace is the nature of the, spect- the, the, the dimensional nature of mental health and mental health problems that we are all at some point in our lives, at every point in our lives, actually somewhere on that dimension from complete wellness at the one end to complete disability due to. Or mental health problems on the other. This is a very simplistic way, of course, of describing what is a much more complex phenomenon. But what we have to move away from is a binary approach. You have a disorder, you don't. To me, this is what I don't think is either founded in science or indeed the way to, uh, mental health is experienced by each of us. So what that means is that as I think Manjula or uh, uh, Paolomi described, describe, it is, it is completely fine when a young person comes to you without a disorder, it doesn't mean that they don't need help. And in fact, the center they describe is a great example of you reach out to whoever needs any support without the need of a diagnosis or the implication that might have in terms of what kind of intervention you provide. Equally, it also acknowledges that there will be some young people whose mental health is so impaired that they actually do have a mental disorder as currently diagnosed and who may need a more uh, intensive intervention involving psychiatrists. So it's not a competition. It's not a one, basically, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's something that embraces the diversity of mental health experiences in the population.
4: Um, thank you, Vikram. And we have two minutes left. So I'm going to hand this over to back to Impri uh, to make the concluding remarks. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank you so much, ma'am. Sameer, would you like to propose a vote of thanks quickly? Yes.
2: yes. Thank you so much, everyone. It was so wonderful listening to all of your expert uh, views and expert insights. Um, Professor Patel, Professor Vikram Patel, we are so glad and we are we owe you our gratitude that you were able to spend your uh, time, your precious time with us uh, discussing this important uh, issue. So uh, thank you so much again. Our chair, Professor Chandra, uh, thank you so much for uh, handling the session so well and uh, discussing and leading us into the discussions. Uh, our discussants for the day, Ms. Urvashi Prasad, uh, Dr. Aparna, Dr. Manjula, Dr. somitro thank you so much. Sadam, thank you for uh, sharing your um, insights, your experiences, and Dr. Pallami. Thank you so much, and it has been a very great learning experience. And about having a multilingual call center um, for the youth, it is an important task, and uh, let us all join hands, and we'll definitely do it. Thank you so much, and I wish you all a very good day. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Thank you
5: all. Bye-bye.
7: Thank you so much. Thanks a Thank lot. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
9: Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you. Thank you.